Hi, my name's Luke. Uh, I'm going to be doing the Bible reading tonight. The first one is uh, 2 Samuel 22, 7-20, which is on page 319 if you're using a pew Bible. If you're using an iPhone, you can use the search function. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the presence of his, sorry, out of the brightness of his presence, bolts of lightning blazed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot arrows and scattered the enemies, bolts of lightning, and routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed, and the foundations of the earth laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath from his nostrils. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Hey everyone, I'm Camilla. And the second reading tonight is from Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, which is on page 994, the Pew Bibles. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus has said to him, come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission And the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, 
The man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Well, good evening. Um, Can I just say... Thanks to Luke, who read for providing the first Mark's gospel image. Uh, beautiful photo. Uh, think of parable of the sower makes me think of. Uh, can I also say uh, what a joy, in light of what Roger said, what a joy it is uh, to be able to, to be freed up by your generosity to serve you uh, as one of your pastors. Uh, and so I just want to encourage you to read that document. And um, I'm really thankful for this ministry that we have together. Uh, Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would be with us this evening, as you have been, powerfully, and grant us the grace to grow through your word, and again, to see your son Jesus clearly, and what he means for us. Amen. Well, uh, we're working our way, as you know, through Mark's gospel as a church, Mark's account of the life of Jesus. Uh, And over the next two weeks, we get to two of the most gripping stories in the whole gospel. Uh, The incident before us this evening in in verses 1 to 20 of chapter 5 is an incident that really suits Newtown, I think. Uh, It has the kind of character this suburb kind of identifies with. Uh, It's it's, it's raw and in your face and it's it's a bit confronting. It's like a dandy movie about the sex trade in Mexico. This is a Newtown moment in the gospel, I think. It's also a story that suits Newtown because it's a story about good versus evil. Now, when I talk to people around these parts, friends and people I used to work with and whatever, I get the impression that this kind of thing is actually quite important uh, for many of us. That is, it's quite important for many of us to see ourselves as on the side of good and against evil. Um, Our society is not, you see, morally ambivalent. In fact, totally the opposite. Generally, people I know care deeply about things in the world they believe are wrong or unjust, and it's important to them to be on the side of good. This is why many people support causes or organizations that they believe in, whether it's Médecins Sans Frontières or PEN or Doctors Without Borders or whatever. Now, of course, there are different versions of what the real problems are in the world, what counts as evil. For some of us, the market is the great force for evil in this world. Uh, For others, it's not enough market. That's the real problem. Um, My point is just that for most of us, I think it's quite important to us to see ourselves as, in some way, however small, standing on the side of good against evil. Do you think that's fair, basically? Fair? Some heads nodding. Thank you. Okay. Let's think about that. In the passage before us this evening, we see Jesus battling with evil. Jesus goes to a place that is kind of like the heart of darkness. And there comes face to face with the forces of evil. It's a beautiful display of Jesus' power and authority to bring good. And I think that resonates with us as a culture, actually. But I think it's also a story that's quite confronting for us. Because 
it's also a story about the reactions people have to Jesus' work. And they are not as inspiring. And it shows us, I think, a truth about ourselves that we would probably rather leave alone. That we may actually be far less committed to standing against evil than we would like to think we are. That in fact, our fears can often lead us to prefer darkness to light. So with that sober warning, can I invite you now to look at Mark chapter 5, this incredible story of fear and love in the heart of darkness. Uh, We're going to look at it in four parts. Uh, First, we'll look at the the demon-possessed man and what he shows us about the reality of evil. Second, we'll look at Jesus' power to deliver from evil. Third, at the reaction of the people and what that shows us about ourselves. And finally, the different response of the demoniac, as he's called, and how that might help us. Okay, first then, let's look at this man at the center of the story. Jesus goes across Lake Galilee to the southeast side, uh, the region called the the region of the Gerasenes. This is an area where mostly Gentiles lived, uh, that is, non-Jewish people. Uh, It was dominated by ten cities known as the Decapolis. Uh, That name is used later on. As we'll see, this is no country for old men, so to speak. Jesus says that as soon as, Mark says that as soon as Jesus got out of the boat, he is immediately met by this terrifying man with an evil spirit. Over the past weeks, uh, we've seen how Mark's narrative is fast paced. He says immediately this happened, then immediately, immediately, it moves on. But here, Mark slows down suddenly. He slows down and gives us actually quite a lot of detail about this guy. Let's have a look at it. This guy is a tragically broken human being. He is a complete outcast. He's living where no one else would go. Desperate, broken, mad and dangerous. We're told that he has a history, but it is a tragic history. See how it says there? No one could bind him anymore in verse 3. Anymore. That is, once people had been able to bind him, the good old days. But now he's weirdly become too strong. He's, he's, he's got this supernatural strength and no one can subdue him and he breaks the chains. And, and so now he's, he's descended into the existence of almost like a wild animal. Night and day he roams the hills and the tombs, naked as we'll see later on, and shrieking out. And he's gradually destroying himself, cutting himself with stones. He's lost his mind and is gradually torturing himself to destruction. Can you imagine a more pitiful human existence than this? In fact, he's he's barely human anymore. Completely incapable of anything approaching a real relationship. He's been reduced to an animal's existence, living among the dead. Who knows what he was eating? What a tortured, horrible mind he must have had as he tormented himself in horror upon horror. Yet his situation is not just tragic, is it? It's evil. 
For the Jewish disciples, this actually would have been especially obvious because everything about this situation is symbolic of evil for them. They were in Gentile territory. Gentiles were unclean. The man has an evil spirit. There were tombs nearby, and the dead are unclean, and you don't go near tombs. And as we'll see, there's also pigs around, which for Jews are symbolic of uncleanness. To the disciples, this must have seemed like the heart of darkness. And this man shows us two very important things about the nature of evil. First, he shows us that evil cannot be reduced to what we would think of as natural causes. The explanation we're given for his suffering is that he had been overtaken by an evil spirit. There was more to this man's situation, that is, than simply mental illness. Sorry, this keeps coming out. Fix it. Than simply mental illness or parasites or epilepsy or social isolation. I mean, all of these things might have been there. But alongside all of these and at the heart of them, we're told that this man had become the host of dark and terrible spiritual forces. Now, for some of you, I've just crossed over the line into voodoo nonsense. Uh, So let me just pause on this for a little while, because this is not the kind of thing we encounter most days at work. So let's just say a couple of things about this. Demons. Firstly, belief in demons is not actually irrational. It might feel like it is, but it actually isn't. It's only irrational if you've already accepted the assumption that the only truth in the universe is material reality. If you've accepted that, then sure, believing in demons is is crazy. But of course, that assumption is not necessarily true. In fact, most people in the world don't think it is true. It's a belief like other beliefs, and there's plenty of evidence against it. Second, belief in demons is not necessarily primitive superstition. This is the standard thing people say, of course. Uh, They say that what people used to think of as demons, we now understand to be the product of natural causes like mental illness. Now, at one level, I'm sure there is some truth in this. Uh, No doubt people in ancient times and still in some other parts of the world have sometimes called demon possession what we now call schizophrenia or psychosis. However, it's not as simple as demon possession in every case is always mental illness. For one thing, there are cultures today that are familiar with modern medicine and yet maintain the importance of thinking about spirits. Many Aboriginal people, for example, would argue that. For another thing, that simplistic criticism can't actually be made of the Bible. Um, In Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, for example, it says that people brought to Jesus all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. That's really interesting, you see, because it shows us that the Bible is perfectly capable of distinguishing the demonic from other things. Thirdly, the idea that evil can be reduced to human evil and natural causes arguably struggles to make sense of the reality of evil in the world. Now, that's a bigger thought than we have time to explore tonight, but I think we can all acknowledge that the world is full of evils, actually, that scarily exceed our expectations 
and defy explanation. If the 20th century, with its death camps, gulags, genocides, torture and the Holocaust has taught us anything, it is that. Systems and circumstances can become evil beyond any human intention. The lives of individuals can also be mysteriously and terribly overcome by evil. Forms of addiction and illness, for example, can sometimes turn into something far darker. So although it it certainly is true that we don't see a lot of demonic activity today, at least I suspect you probably don't, it's quite another thing to conclude on the basis of that that there are no such things as demons and that evil can be understood with reference only to human agency and things we can put our finger on. That might actually be a foolish thing to conclude. However different from our experience this man in Mark chapter 5 is, he reminds us of something that, yes, it's scary, but it also kind of makes a lot of sense. That evil is deeper and darker than we think. It is not simply a matter of predictable forces and things we understand. There are powers and authorities in the heavenly places that are full of of malice and hatred and darkness. Okay, that's the first thing I think this man shows us about evil. The second thing is, you you might sound a bit odd, but it's quite important. The second thing is that the power of evil has a lot to do with death. Did you notice the way it's emphasized that this man lives among the tombs? He comes out of the tombs. He lives among the tombs. He howls at night in the tombs. We're meant to see that this is a man who is connected with the dead. Now, the connection actually goes further than this. Um, Where it says evil spirit, uh, it's literally actually unclean spirit. In fact, almost always in the Gospels when it says evil spirit, it's unclean spirit. English translations often just say evil, but what that does is it obscures the connection between the demonic And death. In the ancient world, however, that connection is really important. In fact, when people spoke of demons and unclean spirits in the ancient world, they were very often talking about spirits of the dead, rather like the way many cultures still believe in ancestral ancestral spirits. Well, that's kind of interesting, Andrew, you say, but uh, who cares? That could just be silly. The thing is, though, the connection between the demonic and death is more than just a cultural superstition. According to the Bible, evil really is connected with death. Hebrews chapter 2 describes the devil as him who holds the power of death. Him who holds the power of death. Evil, according to the Bible, is connected with death and with the sway it holds on our lives, the fear it creates and the havoc it wreaks. And we'll see this fear come up again later in our passage. According to Jesus, it was his mission to deliver people from this kind of evil. Evil with a name and a will Evil that wields the power of death. 
As we saw in Mark chapter 3, if you're with us, he described his mission in, t- in terms of as like tying up a strong man, by which he meant the devil, in order to plunder his possessions. And here in chapter 5, when Jesus meets a man, did you notice it? He meets a man who has been endowed with supernatural strength, whom no one can bind. We're meant to get a powerful proof of Jesus' power to do just this. Okay, that was point one. Don't worry, the others are shorter. Imagine for a moment what it was like for the disciples to get out of the boat and encounter this man. This man who is terrifyingly strong, naked, bleeding and hungry. Scary, no? Yet right from the beginning, there is just no doubt that Jesus is in control of this situation. The man runs to Jesus and immediately falls at his feet, verse 6. It's a gesture of submission. And then he yells at Jesus, What have you to do with us, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torment me. Now that seems scary, right? Would have been scary. Yet what we've got to understand is that the one who's afraid, the one who's really afraid, is the demon. He's scared that Jesus is going to torment him. Jesus has commanded him, we hear, to come out in verse 8. And the demon is trying to get some kind of guarantee from Jesus that he'll be okay. And he kind of tries to show him he knows who he is as like a power play. Now Jesus asks for the demon's name. And it's only here that we get the full horror of this man's situation. My name is Legion, replies the man, for we are many. This man has become the home of an army of evil forces whose identity, his, his identity and integrity as a person has just been swallowed up, and dis, swallowed up and disintegrated by an evil that is kind of multitude. Now it gets even weirder, doesn't it? For some reason, who knows why, this legion are desperate, verse 10, to not leave the area. They want to stay there. And so they beg Jesus to give them some alternative that means they can stay. What about these pigs? Can we go into them? We need to notice the incredible authority of Jesus here. There is just no question who is in charge. Jesus comes face to face with an army of evil in the heart of darkness and they fall at his feet and beg for mercy. Can I just point out that this is profoundly encouraging? And it may be that there are some of you here tonight who actually really need to hear this. Because there may well be some of you who feel absolutely stuck, who feel like the forces arrayed against you are just too big. Perhaps it's because of an addiction or a habit that you have lost control over and that has kind of got you. It's taken hold of you and you can't get out of it. Perhaps you find yourself in a situation at work or at home or with a friend that has turned absolutely toxic. If that's you, can I just encourage you to see that there is no power in the universe that can stand before Jesus. They all fall to their knees. 
the sin, the evil that you are facing is not, not, not too big for him. He can deal with it without breaking a sweat. Most of you, though, aren't thinking along those lines, are you? Most of you are thinking something else. You're thinking, what's the deal with the pigs? What is the deal with the pigs? You know, I don't really know. The problem is we just have nowhere near enough knowledge about spiritual reality to know what happens when spirits like this go into animals. I mean, how would you even begin to start thinking about that? I don't know. Dave Nelson suggested I should say something about bacon. Uh, It's a message about bacon. I don't think it is. It could be that the demons are kind of ironically defeated here because they can't control the pigs and they end up not able to stay in the area. They run into the sea. They can't stay where they wanted to stay. I don't know. I think one thing is clear, though, and that's that what Jesus does here is end their time among people. Their time tormenting humans is over. But it's so cruel, you're thinking. I mean, what did the pigs ever do wrong? Poor little pigs? Well, maybe. Although it's worth remembering that no one at the time was thinking that. The Jewish disciples were thinking, good riddance, pigs. No love lost there. We hate pigs. Bye-bye, pigs. Fine. The other people there, the Gentiles, on the other hand, they're not concerned about animal welfare either. No, when the pigs went over the hill into the sea, what they saw was money. 2,000 pigs. That is a lot of money. That's like a quite large business. And that, I think, is the really confronting thing about what Jesus does here. And it's one of the keys to understanding the reaction of the people. This is our third point. Mark tells us that those tending the pigs went off and reported what had happened. And then the people, obviously, you would, they come out to see. And then when they come to Jesus, they see the man. And Mark tells us in verse 15 that they were afraid. And they go and tell other people, and it gets bigger what has happened to the man. They also tell them about the pigs. And then ultimately, the consensus of the community is that Jesus has got to get lost. Verse 17, then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their area. It's important, I think, that we pause and think about this. Because it is really a very ugly reaction. I mean, sure, at one level, it was fair enough that they were afraid, right? I mean, this was extremely weird. This was a man who had been, they thought, broken beyond repair. Moreover, Jesus has just destroyed somebody's livelihood. Why would you want someone like that around? It's destructive. But hang on. Of course you would. Or at least, of course you should. Because it should also have been obvious that what Jesus had done was a beautiful thing. They saw the man, Mark says, verse 15, they saw him sitting there dressed and in his right mind. That is a beautiful picture, isn't it? They see this man who they had known, who has had a history with them, miraculously 
incredibly healed, ready to re-enter human community. What could be more obviously and powerfully a sign that this power, although it's scary, is incredibly good? And yet they don't want it. They're brought face to face with a stunning, incredible deliverance from evil and they don't want it. They want Jesus to go. When push comes to shove, they would prefer, frankly, for things to remain as they were. The demons to stay in their area, Jesus to leave their area. The man to stay possessed and they can keep their pigs and everything can go on as it was. I think we need to see this reaction for the ugly thing that it is. They can't see this beautiful thing right in front of their eyes. They can't see that this man is worth far more than the pigs. All they can see is that things have been disrupted, messed up. When confronted with the light, they prefer the darkness. I think we also need to see that this reaction is a little bit closer to us than we would like to think it is. Imagine for a second, right? Imagine for a second, we replace the pigs with, say, houses and cars. What if Jesus did something symbolic that made it look like he would damage or severely change everything that matters to us and that we depend on? Businesses, investments, the lifestyle we love. How would we react then, do you think? How well would we be able to see the good thing in front of us for what it was? Would we be able to put aside our fears about what Jesus would mean for our livelihood and our lifestyle? Enough to rejoice that this man had been brought back from the dead. Would we be able really to see the good for what it was? Friends, we, like the people in the story, can be incredibly self-absorbed. It's very possible, isn't it, for us to be kind of okay with the suffering of others, as long as it doesn't impinge upon us too much. It's very possible for us to be indifferent to good things that don't affect us, or resistant to those that cost us. You see this very clearly, I think, in our attitudes to those who suffer at a distance from us, whether due to poverty or the economy or the changing climate or war or gambling. We might acknowledge in principle that these are bad things, but when it actually comes to paying the price to do something, we are extremely reluctant. I wonder if you know this tendency within your own heart. Regardless of what you think about third world hunger or climate change or whatever, do you know this tendency to defend your patch at all costs? It's like a survival instinct. We're afraid, you see. We're afraid to lose things. We're afraid, at bottom, of death. And that fear can and does lead us to the kind of ugly self-absorption that we see here. John chapter 3, verse 19 says this, This is the verdict. 
Light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. See, the Bible won't flatter us. It says that the dark truth is that we are not as willing to stand up to evil as we think we are because we are too concerned to protect ourselves. We like to think of ourselves as warriors for good, as against evil, but the truth is that so often when confronted with the light, we choose to stay in the dark. There's one person in the story, though, who has a different response, and that's the man who is saved. As Jesus is getting into the boat, he begs him to go with him. Now, I want you to pay attention to this guy because it's, it's, it's more incredible than you think. In this story, everyone begs Jesus. The legion begged Jesus. The people begged Jesus. And now the man begs Jesus. But he is the only one who begs out of anything other than self-interest. The people beg Jesus to go. The demon begs Jesus to be allowed to stay. But this man begs to be allowed to go with Jesus. And what motivates him is not selfishness, but love. We see this in the fact that when Jesus doesn't let him go, he doesn't make a fuss. He doesn't whinge. His desire, you see, is not to get more from Jesus, but to serve him. And so if Jesus wants him to go and proclaim the gospel, well, that's what he'll do. This is the first character we see beg, not out of fear for his, his own well-being, but out of a love that has set him free. He goes away and he does even more than Jesus has commanded. Jesus told him to go and tell his own family what the Lord had done. And he goes and proclaims to the whole region, it was a big area, what Jesus had done for him. And we're, we're not supposed to think he got it wrong. We're supposed to think he got it actually really right. He becomes, you see, like a warrior in the fight against evil. So what makes him different? What is it that frees him up in this incredible way? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? It's his experience of deliverance. It's the fact that he knows how much Jesus has done for him, how he has been shown mercy. That's what turns him around completely and frees him from fearful self-interest. And that's the key, too, for how things can be different for us. You see, the fearful self-interest that is a part of us all, it is not easily overcome. We cannot make ourselves love the light just by trying really hard. We need something to change us, something to completely reconfigure us so that we love what is good and serve no longer with fear. What we need, actually, is the same thing that changed this man. Knowledge of how Jesus has had mercy on us and what he has done to save us from evil. And the place to find this, just to finish, is at the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus went further into the heart of darkness than he did even for this man. 
in order to rescue us from the devil and all that is evil and the power of death. In fact, I think part of the reason Mark records this story in so much detail is actually that this demonized man is in a weird way, a shadowy reflection of what Jesus did on the cross. For Jesus too was stripped naked and he was bound and was bleeding and he was rejected by the community and crucified outside the city at a place near the tombs called the Skull. And he was surrounded by a legion of the unclean who tormented him and abused him. He was weighed down and assaulted by all the powers of death and evil in the universe. And before he was laid in a tomb, he cried out in agony and distress. And by doing so, he bound the strong man forever. In the words of Hebrews chapter 2, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Brothers and sisters, we will never be able to live without fearful self-protection. We will never really be able to stand against evil until we have really understood how Jesus has had mercy on us and saved us. So let me ask you, do you really want an end to evil? Do you really want your life to be against evil? Then if so, look to the cross and see what Jesus has done there to free you from its power. Because that will fill your heart with the love and peace and security to overcome your fear and welcome the light. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this incredible thing you did for this man. We thank you that you went all the way into the darkness and brought light into his life. And we thank you for the image that is of what you have done for us so much more wonderfully. Going all the way into the deepest darkness on the cross to deliver us from the powers of evil. And we pray that that wonderful mercy shown to us would fill our hearts so that we will live no longer out of fear but out of love. And we ask this, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen.